1968, Apollo 8 astronauts Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders became the first people to orbit the moon. As they came around the moon for the third time, they caught a glimpse of the Earth rising over the lunar surface. One of them snapped a photo. In that image, the Earth is a swirling ball of blue and white, a jewel against the darkness of space. The photo became known as Earthrise, and it was reproduced across the globe in magazines like Life and Time. Several years ago, I talked to William Anders, the Apollo 8 astronaut who captured the iconic image. I asked him about his historic lunar flight. Well, we were doing our jobs. We were uh, fighter pilots, test pilots, and so this was all sort of the, uh, just our line of work. But to see, you know, the back side of the moon, the front side up close, was all very exciting. But really, in retrospect, the most exciting part was to see the Earth from a lunar perspective. And were you surprised when the Earth just popped up in your window? Yes, I was. Uh, because we were going backwards, uh, looking down at the moon uh, from the direction we came, that's all we saw was the moon, and it wasn't until we reoriented the space draft, turned it around, and faced it forward that we were able to see uh, the Earth coming up over the lunar horizon. Uh, I called it out. I think everybody saw it about the same time. There was a scramble uh, for cameras. I was sort of the official photographer of the flight, though I'd had essentially no training. Why were you the official photographer? I don't know. <laughs> just, somebody made me the official photographer. Uh, and if you can, try to recall that first moment, what you were thinking about when you looked back at the Earth. Well, the first moment I looked back at the Earth was uh, going to the moon uh, and uh, see it shrinking as we moved away. And as a matter of fact, uh, from a lunar distance, the Earth is about the size of your fist at arm's length. Wow. Not big. So that impressed me almost immediately that our planet physically was really insignificant. Uh, but uh, that uh, even though it wasn't physically significant, it was our home and therefore important to us. And we ought to learn to treat it better. Bill, you know, NASA records everything. And fortunately, we're able to listen to the tape from the very moment that you and your two colleagues um, saw the Earth rising. And we can ID you because you're the guy asking for the colored film. I'm going to play it for you now. Oh, go ahead. Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that's pretty. Hey, don't take that. It's not schedule. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color. Quick, oh, man, that's crazy. Quick. quick. Down here, just grab me a color. Listening to that tape, I think I detected a little bit of edge creeping into your voice, when, especially when you were asking for that colored film. Am I right about that? Well, Borman was very focused on, on uh, doing our mission, which was to test out these uh, space vehicles. I'd been assigned the job of photographing the lunar surface. Uh, the Earth was not in the flight plan at all. You might wonder why. I have, but uh, never come up with a good answer, except we just didn't think about it, or NASA didn't think about it. But uh, I knew basically where the film was, so once we started taking pictures of the Earth, I just wanted to get on with it. I think I blazed a shot off with the camera I had in my hand at the time, uh, but then managed to get uh, Lovell or somebody to pass me a uh, magazine of color film and slapped on the long lens. 
and started blazing away. You made a lot of effort to, to bring and then grab that color film. Why, why was color film so important to you? Well, the, the earth is colorful. You know, black and white may be good for uh, technical analysis. Uh, certainly in the moon, you didn't need color film. And I was challenged by uh, others, uh, why take color film when the moon isn't colorful? But uh, luckily, we had it, and uh, that's what I wanted to take a uh, picture of this beautiful and colorful planet we live on. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, the people down in the photo lab picked this one color one that I took that has become the uh, iconic Earthrise picture. What, uh, what I find is ironic that I just learned here recently that the Earthrise was printed upside down. <laughs> In other words, they flipped it. And so I've never been able to, I've always wondered why I couldn't figure out the continents. And if you, I guess if you look at the negative through the back, you can figure it out. But I thought that was ironic because this thing's been, you know, uh, replicated a million times probably on stamps and other things. At the time that you took this series of photographs, did you have any idea about the kind of impact it would have upon your return? No, I frankly, I did not. Uh, we, I was just out there doing my job. Here was a new target. And that's why I told Lovell, don't worry, this may be the first Earth rise, but there'll be uh, hopefully eight more in our orbit so we can get a good one later. I think we probably did take some later, but of course it was the first Earth rise that uh, had all the historic significance. Yes, in fact, you said quite famously that we came all this way to discover the moon, and what we really did discover is Earth. Well, it didn't take long to realize that the moon had been pulverized by uh, meteoritic bombardment through the eons. It was just a big mess. Uh, I described it as dirty beach sand, where a lot of people have been walking in the sand and having <laughs> barbecues there and getting uh, charcoal spread around. Uh, I caught a lot of heck from uh, <laughs> poets on that one. But yet here was, here was our home planet, uh, looking uh, beautiful, serene, delicate, looking peaceful. There was no uh, country divisions. And it was sort of weird to think that, well, on one side of it, uh, people are trying to kill folks on the other side of it. You know, why don't we try to get together? Did seeing the Earth from the moon change any of your political views? Well, yes, I, uh, I must say I, uh, it made me realize that, uh, that the Earth wasn't the center of the, of the universe and that uh, religions and things like that who were based on uh, Earth being particularly special had a certain flaw in them, and I have yet to fully square that, but uh, there's a heck of a lot more Earths out there than even a supercomputer can keep track of. Yeah. You know... Expectations were so high in the 1960s for what might come of the this, this space program in general, the Apollo missions. How, how do you assess what we've accomplished um, and where have we fallen short? Well, I think uh, people have lost track and NASA has not faced up to the fact that uh, Apollo was a, uh, a Cold War policy by Kennedy. Uh, it's been coded, given a patina of exploration, but that really wasn't what the American taxpayers were paying for. They were paying to beat those dirty commies. And when the flag 
went into the moon, thanks to Neil and Buzz, that basically uh, satisfied the objective of what Apollo was all about. Now, of course, it, was, it became a jobs program for NASA after that, and so uh, that, plus everybody's excitement about uh, the exploration phase of it that there was, propelled NASA to keep going. We would have had uh, 30 lunar landings if uh, Nixon and others hadn't uh, pulled them up short. So I think the lesson that I've learned from that is admit what your real goal is and why, and don't try to kid yourself that uh, just because you've made one objective that has been supported by the public, that you uh, therefore are destined to and will be funded for making some other uh, destination. Bill, if you could visit one place on Earth or beyond that you haven't been to yet, where would it be? Well, I mean, if, if I wasn't paying for it... You're not paying I, for it. Yeah. That uh, backstory has a huge travel budget. Yeah. I, you name, the, you was, name the place. Yeah, I don't think it would be worth it to everybody else. I wouldn't. I would have enjoyed. I'd have. I'd have voted for uh, Apollo thirty-five if I could have landed. But from a re- responsible, uh, by that time working in Washington, uh, policymaker, I just didn't think it was worth it. Uh, eventually, uh, humankind will go to Mars. I think the talk uh, that we hear lately from the enthusiasts is massively uh, premature. We don't have the equipment. We don't know how to solve the radiation problem. Uh, Zero G for that amount of time is tough. And I hope that the talk of going here in five years or something like that doesn't eventually turn people off. But sooner or later, Earthlings will go to Mars. And I hope they do it as Earthlings, not jingoistic uh, Americans trying to beat the Chinese, trying to beat the Russians, to beat the, uh, the Cubans. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks, and keep up the good work. Apollo 8 astronaut William Anders is a retired major general in the United States Air Force. So, Nathan, where were you when the first men landed on the moon? I was about nine years before being born, (laughs) actually, Brian. (laughs) I remember very vividly not only the moon landing, but the buildup to it. You know, the first suborbital flights, the first orbital flights, and... You know, we'd be sitting in class in school and the public address system would come on and they'd follow the very brief space flights initially or portions of them on the public address system in school. Now, you know that's important. Do they still have a public address system when you went to school? You know, they did, actually. And, you know, one of my earliest memories of 
that system um, was watching a liftoff. But it wasn't of a walk on the moon at that time. It was actually the Challenger disaster as a child um, oh, because my goodness. we were so captivated as kids um, in schools. And, you know, the magic of that moment where we had a teacher in this case, you know, going into space, it was an extraordinary moment. So the, the you know, sad kind of chapter of American history, the tragedy of America's space program was something that was piped right into the schools. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, my youth has a kind of connection and, and fits and starts with exactly, you know, this question about what is a priority around space and also, you know, really the Cold War spending stuff that the space race helps to initiate. Um, I mean, I remember in, in January of 1987, you know, being part of a mass march that my mom dragged me along to as part of the waning nuclear freeze movement at that time. And we, the group was marching on then Cape Canaveral. But I do I do remember in a lot of ways the, the concerns about, you know, uses of government resources, um, you know, being very much what was on the table for a lot of the folks in the crowd at that time. That's so interesting because we know that I'm significantly older than you. And there was a lot of discussion about the uses of that technology when I was 10 years old, but it was all about the wonderful things that were going to spring forth from NASA. And of course, we were focused on things like Tang, that, am I allowed to say, horrible tasting orange juice substitute in you know, Nathan, we're both from Florida. Right. Only the real thing <laughs> matters. But that that tang was just, it tasted terrible, but it swept the nation in part because supposedly it's what the astronauts drank. Uh, the next thing I remember being associated with NASA was Velcro, right? I mean, <laughs> how could you do anything today without Velcro? Well, we owe that right. to NASA. It turns out that, in fact, NASA was just instrumental in the development of computers. It was the major purchaser for the components of computers. It was directly responsible for developing key parts of computing from the mouse to, you know, miniature cameras that today we all carry around in our cell phones. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, NASA was more than space, but let's code this all good stuff, right? helping, solving problems. It was going to help with desalination. It was going to even solve urban problems with its technology. Yeah, I mean, the magic of whatever humanity's next chapter was was going to be found in space. And that was certainly fed by popular culture. Um, but it was also responded to and rebutted in popular culture. I mean, you think of somebody like, you know, Gil Scott Heron, who in 1970, you know, he releases the album Small Talk at 125th and Lennox. And on that, you know, album is a, a, a very important piece of poetry called Whitey on the Moon, Right. And and Heron is is very much attentive to the poverty in places like Harlem and the kinds of money that's being spent. And there isn't any magic to the space program. In fact, that's seen as being the next frontier that, you know, those who have the resources and the wealth and the history to get away um, and escape to the next, you know, frontier are going to leave everybody else behind on this impoverished planet. And, and again, it never turned into, obviously, a mass movement against the space program. But I do think it was an important soundbite or, you know, sounding off of the period about what are, in fact, the costs of all the innovation or the arrival of Velcro or other kinds of novelties that may come out of space age investment. 
You know, the, the other thing that is, you know, I think critical about rethinking the space race, and this has happened a lot recently, is, of course, imagining what exactly were the civic benefits that came out of the space race, or at least, you know, some of the challenges and the questions that were always embedded in America's race to, say, outdo the Russians in technology, for example. I mean, we're, we're from, both familiar with Margot Lee Shetterly's really impressive accounting in Hidden Figures, where she talks about Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson as three really extraordinary mathematicians who basically, you know, overcome racial discrimination and gender discrimination, but work within NASA to help them achieve this tremendous success. And so it's a total reframing of how American greatness actually happened. And, you know, again, I also think it's important to keep in mind that there's no shortage of love for the beyond among a cross-section of American society. I mean, I take my kids to the National Air and Space Museum, and it's just as magical for them as kids of color as it would be for anybody else. And so I have to, in a lot of ways, congratulate you know, NASA in a cultural sense for unlocking a certain, you know, kind of magic for subsequent generations of young people to imagine what's the next great frontier for, you know, the country, for the world, for the species, frankly. That's absolutely right. And it is interesting that this work, like Margot Lee Shetterly, is just being done now or in the last five or 10 years, we're recovering these stories. Uh, it does lend a little more credence to the notion that this initiative to put a man on the moon uh, was a unifying force uh, in American culture. Would you agree with that? I would in some ways. I mean, I, th I think there is nationalism that gets wrapped up in this. I think there are ways in which politicians become really effective at talking about the collective benefits of the investment in NASA and the space race as part of, you know, military forms of industrialization and expansion across the country. You know, congressional districts are awash in these kinds of dollars, especially in the South, places like Alabama, um, certainly Florida, Atlanta. Um, but, I, but I do also think that there are ways in which, you know, thinking about the next big theater of American innovation and of, you know, challenge and transgression in some ways, again, moves the eye off of existing fissures on the ground. So there's, there's a way in which the papering over of certain conflicts is another feature of the obsession with the beyond. But, you know, I, I do think it's, it's important to at least give a nod to the fact that we require innovation um, as a human species to survive. And, you know, in theory, many of the ideas that we are now grappling with in terms of conservation and saving this planet are also connected to ideas about exploring other places in the universe. Um, so, so I got to ask you, given your perspective as someone who witnessed the moment 50 years ago, this particular commemoration, does, does it feel any different from other 50th anniversaries? Is, is there something driving this that isn't like, say, you know, the good old days or, you know, kind of a pining for an America that was less complicated? I mean, is, is there something about the nostalgia around space exploration that isn't as laden as other kinds of attempts to, to look back and remember American greatness from a half century ago? Well, yes, because I was one of those people who challenged the greatness in real time. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about 1969, I wasn't quite as precocious as you, but <laughs> I was out there protesting against a number of things when I was in high school. And I was literally one of those who viewed NASA as a fake 
phony sleight of hand to divert resources that might have been going to solve the city's problems and an issue that I was particularly interested in. Now, I, I'm the first to say I think that was a little bit naive, uh, but I have I have retained a certain degree of skepticism about technology being able to solve our problems, even being able to help us in the Cold War. I mean, we learned very early after Kennedy announced that we're going to put a man on the moon, we're going to beat the Russians to the moon. We, we learned pretty quickly that the Russians really were not interested in going to the moon at all. I guess the question of the commemoration is perhaps, um, you know, best framed around, you know, what the next 50 years might bring. In, in other words, is it possible to create a, a sense of, just in, in the smallest sense, national uh, morale and buy-in and consensus around a social issue or a civic aim for the country as a whole. I mean, Kennedy certainly did something, if, even if it didn't, you know, remove the problems of disenfranchisement in the South or the problems of gender equity in the workplace by a long way. There was something about the utterance that came from his podium that seemed to at least make it feel like there was a shared mission in some respects. Well, look— Nathan, you're the youthful hope for the future. So I'll <laughs> well, ask <hope> you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry to say, um, <laughs> at least on this program, um, do we need another gigantic national initiative equivalent to, you know, the determination to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade in the 60s? You know, this is from my own vantage point as a as a historian and thinking a lot about what we've just outlined in terms of all of the shadowy areas around the shining, you know, initiative of going to the moon. Um, maybe we should have, instead of a space program, at least as a consensus builder, an Earth program. This feels uh -huh. pretty straightforward um, in terms of what, you know, science can do, how nations can work together. Um, thinking a lot about different forms of engineering and innovation. And, you, you know, uh, frankly, so much can be gained in space exploration by figuring out really basic things like how atmosphere works or how to reduce carbon um, or thinking about sustainable food options. I mean— Or how to provide clean water. Right. No, exactly right. I mean, if we can, you know, solve, say, the water problem in Flint, Michigan, then we can probably take a step closer to solving the water absence on Mars, right? You know, these are the kind of links that I think a lot of people could afford to see done. And, you know, rather than imagining us moving to other barren parts of the, the galaxy or the solar system, you know, making sure that this corner doesn't become barren itself is obviously a really important piece of that. And we have a lot of help uh, by virtue of Mother Nature in keeping this thing rolling. So, you know, I think I think it's possible. I do think, however, that, you know, there should be some acknowledgement of what it would take to create a new bipartisan moment around an Earth program that I think would at least, at least be akin in its broad support during the 60s um, to what the space program enjoyed. <laughs> 